For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. Use the code word REBEL for a discount on pillows, sheets, pet beds, and everything else at MyPillow.com. Now, introducing the champion, fighting out of the red corner, he is a brawler, standing 5 feet 10 inches tall, fighting out of Harlem, New York, USA, presenting the podcasting champion of the world, Ryan! The Disruptor! The What's up, Rebel Dads? So good to have you with us today. What's up to all the Rebels? I know this is a Rebel Dads podcast, but this is a podcast for all parents out there. We've got Dr. Warren Farrell on the podcast today. He's got a book I heard talked about on another podcast, and it was so fascinating, we called and asked if you would come on. It's called The Boy Crisis. I know that in the media, everywhere you listen to, you're told that women are second-class citizens and that they're being misogynized and they're being put down, and in every measurable way, that's not true, and boys are struggling in America. You are really going to enjoy this podcast. It's brought to you by Save the Storks at SaveTheStorks.com, my favorite pro-life organization, helping moms with an unplanned pregnancy. I'm an unplanned pregnancy. My birth mom was 16 when she got pregnant with me, and if it wasn't for a great organization surrounding her, who knows what may have happened. So I appreciate Save the Storks. They create mobile ultrasound units and partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country. More than four out of five women choose life for their babies when they hear a heartbeat and see an ultrasound. Find out more at SaveTheStorks.com. You are really going to enjoy Dr. Warren Farrell. He was the only man on the board of the National Organization for Women until he started studying what was going on in the family and started saying, hey, we need to have dads in the home. And lo and behold, he got kicked out. Surprise, surprise. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Warren Farrell on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Oh, Rebels, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been so excited for this broadcast to come. I couldn't believe Dr. Farrell joined us. I couldn't believe he said yes. I heard you on the Jordan Peterson podcast. I heard you on the Adam Carolla podcast. I told our producer, please, please reach out, get the book, ask if he'll come on. I cannot thank you enough for being here on Rebel Dads today. Thank you so much. I am really looking forward to talking with you. Oh, my goodness. So, Dr. Farrell, let's start from the beginning. What clued you in on there might be a crisis with boys how did you stumble upon this and then I mean this book is huge it is not uh you know a one afternoon book this is packed full of research and information and it's so good when did you start studying this topic when did it come and when did it really hit you well, ironically, when I was promoting back in 1986, when I was promoting um, why men are the way they are in Japan and Australia and Canada and places like that, I kept 
you know, a Japanese teacher was one of the first people to come up to me after a presentation. And she, in excellent English, said, um, in my class, I have more problems with the boys than the girls. And I go, uh-huh. And so, you know, I just was hearing from people from my audience afterwards, you know, that they were having problems with the boys. And this was not just in you know, the United States. It was mm-hmm. all over the world. And so I that got on my radar back in the mid-'80s. Then, as I, you know, I wrote in 1993, The Myth of Male Power, to sort of create a whole understanding that, you know, power is not about an obligation to earn money that somebody else spends while you die sooner. That's your method of contribution, Mm. not your way of lording it over people. But then eventually I saw that the United Nations had done a study of how boys and girls were doing in schools. Well, as I analyzed it, I saw that the top 56 nations, the largest 56 developed nations, in all of those, boys were doing worse than girls, mostly Mm. in every single subject, but especially doing worse than girls in reading and writing. And reading and writing are, academically speaking, the two biggest predictors of success or failure. And so I said, you know, if you're doing badly in reading and writing, you're more likely to drop out of high school. If you drop out of high school, the chances are fairly good that you will be unemployed at the 20% level in your early 20s. And then if you're unemployed and you're male, you become a force for um, self-shame, of anger, of disappointment. Oftentimes you withdraw into video games or porn. And so it's a very dangerous thing for a, a young male to feel like he can't finish school and he can't graduate from college. Um, he- Um, be employed. And I saw that there were countries that were doing things about this. In Japan, 25% of all students are in vocational education programs, mostly boys. And but when they graduate from these vocational education programs, 99.6% of them get employed. But it's not just they're getting employed. When boys are employed, they have purpose. They feel good about themselves. They become eligible for marriage. They become eligible for relationships. Very few women who want to be mothers are looking, searching for possible candidates among the unemployment line. Yeah. And so, you know, women just want to date performers and winners. They don't want to date losers. And so, you know, I was seeing that the, the, the problems were extending to so many areas. Then I began to look at suicide. And I saw that suicide rates were going higher for boys. But at the age of nine, boys and girls commit suicide equally. Between the ages of 10 and 14, boys commit suicide at twice the rate of girls. Between the ages of 15 and 19, boys commit suicide at four times the rate of girls. And between the ages of 21, uh, 20 and 24, boys commit suicide at almost six times the rate of oh, girls. Oh, my goodness. And so, uh, you know, committing suicide is a pretty clear statement, uh, not feeling like you have male privilege mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. feeling like you have male power, but feeling like something is hopeless. And I started to look at, you know, suicide and signs of depression and realized that, you know, that we had only examined depression from the female point of view. We hadn't examined it from the types of ways that boys manifest depression that leads off times to suicide. So I just began to look at one. I then I looked at the shame that boys were facing that, you know, you go into school and you're told you're part, you have male privilege and the future is female and masculinity is toxic. You know, Oxford University Dictionary chose as the 2018 word of the year, the word toxic. And of course, toxic is applied most frequently to masculinity mm-hmm. during. Mm-hmm. And so this is the type of, so boys, are, you know, I was getting when the boy crisis book 
came out, uh, fathers and mothers, particularly mothers, are saying to me, you know, that boys are, my son is going into school. He's in seventh grade and he's hearing how um, boys are part of the patriarchy, how we, how they dominated girls and how men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. And the teachers are unafraid to say this in school. They're just speaking about this. But the son, the boy, is, you know, thinking that, you know, the future is female. Yeah. Well, you know, what does this have to, you know, this doesn't speak well to me. Totally. Uh, Doctor, I got to ask you a question because statistically that's not true. I mean, boys are in prison, uh, like 98% of prison inmates are men. Suicides are higher than men. Homelessness is higher than men. Drug addiction is higher than men in men. Girls graduate high school at a higher rate than boys. They enter college and graduate college at a higher rate than boys. They enter graduate programs and doctoral programs higher than boys. 64% of all small businesses last year were started by women. These are all just statistics brought out by the CDC and organizations, bipartisan or nonpartisan organizations, we know these facts to be true. Where does this narrative come from that one, women are downtrodden, and two, it's men that are holding women down? Where is this belief coming from, and why is this being told to us when factually it just isn't true? It's not true yes. on really any level, and I'm not saying it's not. So this is the example I give. I was reading the book, The Bobsy Twins, to my daughter. Mm-hmm. I think this is from the 20s or 30s. And the very first story is about a little girl that passes out because she jumped rope too much. And the dad was concerned because he had heard of several girls dying from too much jump roping. And I was like, oh my goodness, Lucy, this never happened. This never happened. We live in the age of CrossFit and double unders and strong, powerful women. I don't know where this came from. So I'm not saying there wasn't a time in history where men thought women couldn't do whatever they wanted to, but certainly not only is that belief not held today by most men, working it out among society, it's definitely not. Women are doing exceptionally well, especially compared to men. Men really aren't doing, I mean, suicides are higher and the shame and all that. Where does this myth come from? Why are we being told this all the time? Well, there's two sort of dimensions to this. One is where it's coming from politically. And the second is why we don't, the underlying in-depth reasons as to why we don't care about the crisis, uh, the boy crisis, but even as we care so much about women's um, challenges. And so for the listener's background or the viewer's background, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City for um, three years. I was the only man that's ever been elected to the board for three years in a row. And okay, I got to stop you there. Just to set the stage, you're the only huh? male ever elected to the board of the National Organization for Women in New York. That says a lot. You're a, an evolved guy. You love women. You're clearly not part of this patriarchal problem. You're not a wife beater. You're not an abuser. People like you, women like you. I mean, there's that says so many positive things about you. To then hear the rest of the story is a little incredulous. So I just wanted to lay that down just so people understand it's a big deal to be elected to the board, to be the only person elected to the board that's a man. And so when I was on the board, one of the issues that came up was uh, that the board members were getting a lot of complaints from women uh, who were mothers that after divorces, the assumption was that now, uh, because we favored equality, would favor there being an equal amount of father and mother involvement uh, with children after divorce. 
And the women said, I'm a now member. I want now to be for me. And I know what's best for my children. I've been a new man. I want to be able to move. Uh, he lives out of state. I want to be able to take my child, move out of state where the new man is, start a life over again. I made a mistake with the man that I married. I know what's best for my kids. They'll be better. He earns more money. He's in a better school district, um, so on. And if now is going to be in favor of equality, my former husband and I having to you know, share each uh, challenge with the children, I'm out of here. And so now sort of got that on one level. But the on the other hand, they were saying that, you know, Warren, oh, so now is confronted by that political reality. Okay. And so and I said, well, there's another reality here, too, which is that from the data that we have, this is a debate we were having in the 1970s when I was in the board of now. And I said that, you know, we are also beginning to see data that it makes it pretty clear that children that have a significant amount of time with their fathers do much better than children that don't. Well, this data was fairly in fairly nascent stages at this point because we hadn't had huge numbers of divorces and we hadn't had the longitudinal experience of how does that child do? Maybe the child does badly at the age of eight, but by the age of 28 or 29, it doesn't make any difference sure, anymore. Sure. And so I'm willing to sort of be too forceful on the issue. But, you know, I said that that's, you know, we should really be considering that. And I could see that the vibe I was getting was, are you for us? Or are you against us? And so the theoretical answer was, well, all right, Warren, go out and do some more research on this and see what you find. Mm-hmm. But I could see that if I found that children did best with both mothers and fathers being equally involved, that I was going to be, in essence, excommunicated from all of these you know, recommendations for speaking engagements. So you have to understand, mm-hmm. I was speaking at about 50 colleges and universities and places per year like IBM. And so, you know, I was making a very substantial income and on yeah. TV, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Phil Donahue and all these shows all the time. Now, Oprah Winfrey later, Phil Donahue at that time. And so um, I knew that if I found that children did equally well, uh, much better when they had an equal amount of father involvement, I knew I was kissing my career goodbye. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Rebel Parenting. Hey Rebels, this portion of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at Save the Storks. Save the Storks helps moms with an unplanned pregnancy, and that's my story. I was an unplanned pregnancy. My birth mom was 16 and faced an uphill battle, and a pregnancy resource center in her area helped her carry me all the way to fruition and then helped adopt me into my family. And Save the Storks helps pregnancy resource centers across the country with stork buses providing mobile ultrasound machines where four out of five moms choose life after seeing their baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat. Over 6,000 babies have been saved on stork buses. Please support Save the Storks with your prayers and visit savethestorks.com to become a monthly sponsor. Join the movement and help us revolutionize the meaning of pro-life. For more information, visit savethestorks.com. Welcome back to Rebel Parenting. Did you miss us? Wow, that's shocking to me. If you found out something to be true, then -hmm. your career's over. It's not that you're trying to rewrite a narrative. You're not trying to say, no, 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 we don't like women. We only like men. You're not saying anything negative. You're just saying, here's what the research and the data shows. And then you know, if it shows X, Y, Z, my career gets drastically hurt. That's shocking to me. I guess it's not, but I'm still surprised that 
in the face of truth, it's like, we like this narrative better. We don't care what the data says. We're going to support this narrative. Mm. And to give now's argument was that, you know, Warren, if we start talking about children need to be equally involved with their fathers, we're going to lose now membership. And your focus is on these issues. But we have a whole series of issues to deal with. We need the strongest political base possible. Mm. We don't need to be getting some women for us, some women against us, and then having women divided. We need to only create options and opportunities for women. Now, this went not only from the divorce issue, it went into the another issue that be, that started coming up. In 1965, only 3.5% of Caucasian parents had raised children with minimal or no father involvement. Today, 53% of women who have children who are under 30, 53% have children without being married. Most of those children end up having dad deprivation, minimal or no father involvement. Either the children, 40% of children born today do not have significant father involvement. Um, And so this was a very minimal statistic among Caucasian families in 1965. In 1965, African-American families had a 25% non-father involvement. And when Moynihan did his report in 1965, looking at inner city families, he found out that inner city families were not doing terribly because of race, but inner city families were doing terribly because in that portion of inner city families where there was lack of father involvement, those were the families that were doing badly. Mm -hmm. And so it was not being African-American that was the problem. It was the propensity of African-American parents to have minimal father involvement. And it was not African-American families that were doing badly, but that percentage, 25% of African-American families where father involvement was not involved. Now today, Caucasian families' rate of lack of father involvement is 32% higher than it was among African-Americans in 1965. So you get a sense as to what, and among African-American families, the rate of lack of father involvement has tripled to about 73%. Wow, that is amazing. And here's the thing. In fact, virtually all of my listeners are like, well, duh, of course, without a dad in the home, you know, there's less discipline, there's less structure. And here's the truth. You know, when Laura travels or when I travel and we're doing it essentially on our own for a short period of time, we realize how hard it is. You just don't have as much time for a child. You're working, you're cleaning, you're doing 100% of the workload with 50% of the workers doing it. Of course, something has to suffer. Either your house is going to be messy all the time and you're going to have an endless supply of dirty dishes in your, or... The kids will suffer at some point. There's no choice, but it's just the math. It has to be that way. Yes, and you started to mention something at at the beginning too, which is really important. I was ultimately able to document for the boy crisis more than 70 areas in which boys suffer when they have dad deprivation. Wow. There are most of these areas, girls, our daughters also suffer, by the way. Yeah. And so the girls suffer in some, mostly the same ways, uh, but two things are different. 
One is the intensity of their suffering, committing suicide, being depressed, not doing well in school, things like that. The intensity is not as great. Number two, the girls, and the reason for this is that the girls have a role model, the same sex role model of their own mother. So if they at least, the, but whereas the boys have two, a couple of things happening to them. And the old, uh, one is a purpose void and another is a dad void. And I'll, I'll show how these two work together. And this is the bigger picture as to what's happening. And then I'll get into the what you were just referring to very accurately a minute ago about the differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting mm. and why checks and balance parenting that of is really what allows children to do the best. Okay, so what's happening in the bigger picture is that boys are going through both a purpose void and a dad void. The purpose void is, in the old days, the boy's sense of purpose was be a warrior, um, be willing to be disposable at war. If you're a man, your job is to serve. Today, it's more likely that the statement is, you're my son, um, not you don't have to serve, you deserve. And we've gone from serve to deserve. And so that's part of the, So, but boys, when they learn to serve, the bad news was that boys were being trained that in order to be a man, you have to be disposable. Disposable because we were needed to serve in war. Sure. And we would give you a whole series of social bribes to be willing to forfeit your life. One of those social bribes is to call you a hero and you know tell you that you, we're proud of you and to have you, you know, if you're really a hero, you die for many people, you manage to live enough to die for and save many people's lives. And you know, at a crucial moment in the, in the war sure. where you're maybe a general and won a battle, maybe you'll even have a statue in your name. So you'll leave a legacy and have purpose for your having lived and yet died at the age of 19 or 20. And so we trained boys to be disposable as part of their purpose and definition of masculinity. We also trained boys as part of their definition of masculinity to be the sole breadwinner yep. historically. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, women are sharing more of that burden today. So the bad news is that boys in the old days had to have two senses of purpose. They risked their lives in the hazardous occupations. They worked 70, 80 hours a week to become a top executive or they worked 70, 80 hours a week to drive a cab or an Uber to be able to make money for the family and to be the sole breadwinner. So the good news is that, that so much of the sole breadwinner burden is not on men as it used to be and fewer men are dying in war. That's the good news and that's the bad news. Yeah. The good news for obvious reasons, the bad news because now boys' old sense of purpose is being experienced as a purpose void. And a purpose void is actually an advantage if you have a father. It's an, and a father and mother working together because a purpose void means that your father and mother can work with you to define and find your sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. We can say, okay, you know, Jimmy, Ryan, you're so caring and loving, or, you know, you're so strong and able to take anything. So maybe you're so strong and able to handle anything, and this really gives you a sense of enthusiasm. Maybe you should be a firefighter or a soldier. But if you're a firefighter or a soldier, we want you to know, sweetheart, that you're going to die probably sooner, or at least put your life at risk sooner. So it has to be your choice. Don't do it because you think we're going to be more proud of you. We'll be proud of you no matter what you do, as long as you do something that serves, something that is more than just selfish. Mm. And so then let's search for what that is. Okay, suppose the boy wants to be a musician or an artist or a writer or a teacher. Then mom and dad have to say, yes, you'd be wonderful as a musician, artist, writer, or teacher. But the more fulfilling your occupation is, the less chance you will have of making money. 
uh, the more fulfilling your job, the less it will pay on average because more people will compete to be that musician, that teacher, okay. right? Yeah. And fewer people are needed to be that teacher, that musician, that writer. Most of us need our garbage picked up more than we need a good analysis of our late our piece of art on the wall. And so, if you're an art major, the chances are fairly good you'll be unemployed as an art major, and you'll have to find something else that you haven't trained for. But there is a chance that you'll make it as a musician, artist, writer. What do you need? You need postponed gratification. Yep. How do you get postponed gratification? By mother and father enforcing boundaries. Which parent is more likely to enforce boundaries? It's more likely to work this way. This is the checks and balances you were talking about a minute ago about the different styles of parenting. The checks and balances between a mom and a dad, and that's why it's important to have them both in the home. Yes, okay, go for it. Really wonderful, thank you for reiterating that context. So here's the typical thing that happens in dad and mom style parenting. Uh, so the ch- uh, mom and dad both set boundaries pretty much the same way. Both of them say, for example, sweetie, you can have your ice cream as soon as you finish your peas. And children test the boundaries in exactly the same way. They try to have as few peas as possible before they have their ice cream. <laughs> and um, the difference is in the way dad and mom tend to enforce boundaries. And with the child will say, you know, okay, I had some peas. Can I have some ice cream now? And mom will feel really good about herself and she says i'll tell you what sweetheart and she takes maybe 20 more peas and separates them out she says if you have finished these peas then you can have your ice cream so mom is cutting a deal the negotiation the moms negotiate more yes 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 yeah and moms negotiate out of empathy they say you know the child's had a tough day i've had a tough day we've maybe had a couple of crosshairs a few minutes ago i don't want to take this experience the few moments i have precious moments i have with my child over dinner and turn it into a big fight. Uh, so I'll tell you what, you know, these 20 more peas and then you can have your ice cream. So then the child seeing that negotiations possible has 10 more peas. And the mom says, okay, you've tried. And so the child learns, uh-huh. <laughs> Finishing 50 peas can be negotiated down to 10 peas. And what did I do to be able to negotiate successfully this time? I appealed to something that said, you know, I was bullied at school. I, you know, I was a victim in some type of way. We're divorced and I really miss daddy, you know, or something along those lines. um, And so the child learns to become an expert at being a victim in order to be able to manipulate a better deal uh, to tap into mom's empathy. Dad, the same scenario happens with dad. The kid has a few peas, says, you know, can I have my ice cream now? I tried to have, I had as many peas as I can. And dad says, we have a deal here. The deal here is that you can have the ice cream when you finish your peas. You cannot have your peas. That's okay. But there's no ice cream either. And then the kid goes, you are so mean. Mom is so much nicer than you are. And dad goes, well, you can continue whining and complaining and then there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night at all. And the child learns, oh, shoot. Uh, with dad, I've got to finish a piece before I get my ice cream. And there doesn't seem to be any scream way, wiggle way out of this process. But in fact, I'm going to lose more if I scream and wiggle and, and, and complain. So now here's the important takeaway from this. Well, with dad, uh, the child learns that I have to do what I have to do, eat the peas, before I get what I want to have. That's postponed gratification. And when the child doesn't have that postponed gratification as a result of the boundary enforcement, the child goes to school, tries to finish his homework, but gets distracted by 
a text or an invitation to play a video, new video game, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. goes to an activity. Maybe he's tall and strong, but he learns that he doesn't know how to complete, have the discipline to rehearse for the football game or the basketball game or the play or the recital that she or he is involved in. And so they end up feeling like they didn't make the team, even though they had a natural talent. And so they begin to feel ashamed of themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They start withdrawing into places where they can have a victory, like video games. Or when the boy gets a little bit older, he withdraws into porn because girls date winners. They don't date losers. And so porn gives him access to a variety of attractive women without fear of rejection. You know, I want to ask you about this. That's a really interesting one, uh, winning and losing. When I was in Little League as a child, there were winners and losers. When I was in soccer when I was little, there were winners and losers. You won games, you lost games. And today, if you get to a certain score, they stop keeping score. And at the end of the season, everybody gets a trophy. And I know that's kind of a hack, you know, comedian thing that people talk about a lot. But I do want to ask about that. Is there a detriment in not having winners and losers when our kids are young? When we tell them everybody wins, everyone gets a trophy, everyone did just as good, is that bad for kids? Do they need to know you can win and lose and there's a way to win and lose? Yes, they do need to know that there's a way to win and lose. And it teaches kids how to deal with not winning and not learning how to not win is a very important lesson Mm -hmm. that you don't have to, you know, but the reason we got to this is because we used to shame kids that lost a lot. We used to bully kids that lost a lot and bullying and shaming kids that lose is a downside. But the solution is not to make everybody a winner at everything because it doesn't help kids understand, you know, where do I stand out? And the good news and the best intent of that process of giving everybody a trophy is that we care that you tried. And that's what parents should value. Yes, parents should help children know that we do value your trying and we value your trying your hardest. And yes, you won't win at everything, but you also have to know that there is such a thing as winning and losing because you're going to get out in the world and you're going to start a business and you're going to either make that business succeed or it will fail or you won't start a business. You'll be afraid to start a business because you don't know how to uh, succeed mm-hmm. or you don't know how to fail. And you'll see so you'll join some company and you won't get promoted as quickly as somebody. That's for sure. And so sooner or later, you have to deal with that. The best way to deal with winning and losing is when you have the unconditional love of parents to support you when you fail. Absolutely. Do it when you're younger and get that support of the parents that love you and get the support of both mom and dad because Mm -hmm. mom and dad will deal with your losing differently for the most part. And again, all these things that I'm saying are reversible in some families and some men of fathers and mothers. So mother is more likely to say, you know, sweetie, you know, you fell down on that ski slope and you're trying out for the ski team. And I know you hurt yourself. And this is the second time you've done this in two weeks and you feel really badly. You don't have to be on the ski team, sweetheart. You can drop drop off the te- you know that team or the soccer team or whatever. And so dad will be more likely to say, try again. But some Sometimes dads don't give enough empathy and hold the child long enough, mm. you know, sure, and let them sure. let them have their cry time yeah. and so on. Moms will often translate that cry time into you can give it up time, and dads will often not give enough cry time. Now, right. interesting. And I think sometimes parents swing the pendulum a little bit too far in each direction, trying Absolutely. to correct the other parents' lack. Like, and here's the truth: when my son was young, I was 
much less empathetic than I am now. It was my way or the highway. I was really rigid. I was a terrified parent. I thought I was going to do everything wrong. And Lincoln had to show that I was doing it right by his actions. And it was wrong. It definitely was. And Laura at times swung the pendulum to, it's okay if you quit, because I was so rigid and so hard on that. And we had to come together as a couple and say, you know what? I need to go to therapy. I really do need to get better at this. I'm kind of a jerk as a dad and it's affecting our kids in the wrong way to change that. So it really is important to have both sides and to have one person that's going to be like, you know what? I think you can try again. I think you can get back on that horse. I think it's going to be okay. And you need the parent that if it isn't going to work out, if they absolutely do lose to say, you know what? There's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you any less. Yes, we would have Mm -hmm. all loved it if you won, and your value and our love for you doesn't change whether or not you win or lose. Yeah, man, I love this. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, about not learning to lose when you're young, I think it teaches kids to say when they lose as an adult, it's not my fault. I didn't get the raise, not because I'm late every day and I'm not assertive and I'm not, you know, adding to the company. It's because my boss doesn't like me and it's not fair. You know, I see a lot of that going on. Or I'm a woman and I'm discriminated against as opposed to saying, uh, so when you have an excuse like that, it oftentimes inhibits introspection. Yes. And that ultimately hurts the person we're protecting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you, I think you're stating this exactly correctly, that many dads' propensities is to overpush and to sort of like, and many moms' propensities is to overprotect. But interestingly, when fathers are single fathers, they tend to be a lot more nurturing and empathetic than they are when they're in when they have that role to play. You mentioned in passing a minute ago that sometimes when you, you when you know the other person is going to take that other role, you take your role a little bit too far this way, and you sort of in a way trust that the other parent's going to come and sort of straighten it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, but when when a mother when a, particularly when a father is a single father, and the child say falls on that ski slope or falls off the the horse, uh, the dads tend to give a little bit more nurturing time mm-hmm. before they say get back on the horse again. Mm-hmm. But we really need to have dads and moms, but sort of take every single situation and sort of see what is the balance that we need here between uh, mom-style parenting and dad-style parenting. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Rebel Parenting. Hey, Rebels, this part of the podcast is brought to you by Care Of, one of our new sponsors. The website is takecareof.com. The code word is Rebel Parenting, 25% off your first month. It's hard to get back into a healthy routine when you've been out of it for a while. And Laura and I know this. We've been out of working out. We just joined a new gym and I wanted to kickstart it. So I've been trying to figure out what vitamins and supplements to take. And so I went to my doctor, he did a blood panel and he's recommended some things. And right about that time, Care Of called and said, we want to sponsor the podcast. And they provide uh, supplements, vitamins, and they've got a really neat online quiz you can take. And I was a little skeptical, but I went through the online quiz filling out the things that I want to do. I want to lose weight, gain muscle, and help sleep, and uh, have some stress, stuff like that. They came back with virtually the exact same thing my doctor came back with after the blood panel. Uh, He said I needed magnesium and vitamin D, creatine, protein powder. They came back with the exact same thing, and I was stoked. It makes it so easy, so convenient. Shipped it right to our door, and they've got great tasting flavors. We just mix it up in our tumblers take it throughout the day. It's really been a huge help. And what I really look forward 
uh, look for in a company like this is the transparency. Where are the supplements coming from? How are they packaged? How are they brought to you? And they've got all of that on there. It's takecareof.com, code word, Rebel Parenting. Welcome back to Rebel Parenting. Did you miss us? You've got a really good example of this when you talk about roughhousing and how roughhousing creates empathy in kids and why roughhousing with both parents is important. There's a mom's point of view and a dad's point of view. I found it so can you explain that for our listeners? You know, sure. And it's interesting. And I don't think this is a good or bad thing necessarily. My friends and I, we wrestled, wrestled, and my two best friends growing up, we had fist fights at one point in life. Like we're still friends today, but we came to blows, like not friendly wrestle blows, but like knockdown, drag out blows. I don't really see that as much with kids today, but talk about roughhousing and the mom and dad point of view in that with empathy. Yes. So normally speaking, let's say a dad has three kids Mm -hmm. and he will be much more likely. And one is, uh, let's say, a boy, a girl, boy, and a boy is oldest and boy youngest and then a younger sister. And so he'll take the three kids and throw them on the couch and say, "Okay, the job here is for you three to jump on my back and uh, pin me down before I pin all three of you down together. Oh, man, this is fun. And so mom is looking at this and thinking, oh, my God, I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here. But on the other hand, she's seeing that the kids are having a lot of fun. And then on the other hand, she's saying, you know, sooner or later, this is going to end up in a, and somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to end up crying, sure. but she, I don't want to feel like I'm always a spoil sport. So I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And so she's repressing her feelings. And so the kids jump on dad's back and, you know, with only about a 99.9% certainty, the kids do end up crying or, you know, or somebody hurts somebody else totally. and gets too, too rough. So mom's thinking to herself, oh, okay, I'm glad I didn't interfere. Now dad will see that the roughhousing has to stop because kids are going to get hurt. So dad says, you know, sweetie, you can't take your um, elbow and stick it in uh, your sister's eyes. That's not okay. And so then dad returns to the roughhousing. That's right. And mom's going, this convinces me. He has, he's only one more child I have to monitor. And so then they continue the roughhousing. And then the children experience what psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. At first, they all agree that they will be cautious and not hurt the other one. But as they get into under fire, they get into the excitement of wanting to win. The excitement of wanting to win mm-hmm. overcomes the thoughtfulness of not pushing my brother or sister aside to be beyond a certain point. I can leverage them out. I can fake them out, but I can't just push them um, out and push them out too hard. And so sooner or later, one of the kids violates that and pushes too hard or sticks the elbow back in the eye again. And dad then says, okay, I warned you, roughhousing, over. Oh no, daddy, we will do it. You're right, you're right, we're right. I'm sorry, nope, roughhousing over till tomorrow night. Now, where all the benefits come in is tomorrow night. Because when tomorrow night happens and dad says you can't, if, if you stick your elbow in your sister's eye again, then there'll be no more roughhousing Now the kids are realizing that being rough and aggressive to their sister or brother results in them losing what they want. There's a consequence. And there's a consequence. Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. there's an active competition to their desire to win, which is that if they put too much 
emphasis on that desire to win and push their sister or brother aside, they're going to end up losing what they really want that's creating all the excitement. And so dad, by giving the children a warning and then a chance and then enforcing that, has taught the child that there is going to be no excuses. There's going to be the end of the roughhousing. Mm. Now, here is the big takeaway from this. The children who learn this and are parented in that type of way, and by the way, a mother can do this too. Mothers are much less likely to do it, but they can do sure. this. The children that are, that are parented this way learn to be empathetic, not because the dad or mom says, you should be thoughtful of your sister or brother, because that doesn't compete with the excitement of not being thoughtful and winning. But what does compete with the excitement of not being thoughtful and winning is the loss of the roughhousing. Mm. And so the children have learned to be empathetic, not because of a good lecture being repeated a dozen times, but because of a consequence. And the children have also learned that, well, wait a minute, Dad, that wasn't too rough. But yes, sweetie, that was too rough. Now they're beginning to learn what the difference is between a little bit of roughness and a lot of roughness. Mm -hmm, that is mm -hmm. the difference between being assertive versus aggressive. And so children who learn the difference between being assertive and aggressive and learn to be empathetic, they have more friends. Children with more friends and a better social network are less likely to be depressed, more likely to be involved, more likely to be elected to things, more likely to be feeling good about themselves, less likely to withdraw into video games, into depression, into porn. And they've also learned postponed gratification. Yeah. The immediate gratification was to push your sister aside. The postponed gratification is no, these are the things I can't do in order to win. And so this is an example. And so, but our moms wrong moms dads don't dads can't find parenting magazines that explain these things to dads most dads don't read the parenting magazines anyway sure. so you know the boy crisis is filled with these different um, ways that dad style parenting and mom style parenting are different for the purpose of dads reading this and being able to lovingly explain to moms that this is the outcome of roughhousing, it's assertiveness, not aggressiveness. It's empathy, not um, not loss of empathy. Mm -hmm. But those are all counterintuitive findings. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, the average person doesn't say, "Oh, roughhousing will teach them to be empathetic." Yeah, right. Uh, roughhousing will teach them to be assertive. That doesn't seem like it's right. Right. But it, as you think it through, it makes perfect sense. And as you experience it, it makes perfect sense. Oh. And so, the important thing is, you know, for dads not to, you know, is to read this and to share it. And not to blame moms because moms can't hear what dads don't say. Totally. And the job of moms and dads is to both understand, you know, when things go too far. When the child wants to climb a tree, yes, maybe the mom's propensity to say you can't climb that tree. Now you can do it in a few years. You're too young. And dad says, okay, be careful, but climb, you can climb the tree. And for mom and dad to negotiate a deal to say, okay, the child can climb the tree, but only up to this point and not on that branch. And dad, here, give me the cell phone, you can be out, the child can climb that tree. If you're underneath the tree to a cushion a fall, then children get the IQ advantages 
of learning to climb a tree and find out which risks are too risky and which risks aren't. So there's all sorts of psychomotor functioning advantages and IQ advantage functionings to doing things like taking those risks and climbing the trees. And so I've, I found myself increasingly expanding the sections of the boy crisis yeah. where I explaining the differences between dad and mom style parenting so both parents could lovingly um, connect with each other. Oh, it's fascinating. Let me hit one more topic before we go. We're almost out of time. We were talking a lot about school in the beginning and how there's a lot of shame around boys in school, how they're not doing well in reading and writing. I was just at a homeschool convention this past weekend where my wife and I were speaking, and I was talking about uh, there was a school, they were keeping kids in during recess and lunch if their homework was late. And I was saying, you know, you can't do that with boys. Boys have to run. They've got to run and get this energy out because they weren't made to sit all day long. Women mature faster than boys. They're able to sit more. They're able to hear auditory learning in a better way. Is school, traditional school, is it not created for boys necessarily? And if not, what can schools do to make it easier for boys to learn those subjects and not feel bad about doing poorly in school when it's just, it's hard to sit. It's hard to sit in a chair and listen all day long when you're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. First of all, you're absolutely right on every single dimension of what you said. Yikes. And so the answer to what schools can do, and by the way, Michael Gurian at the Gurian Institute, um, who's written books on boys, has, does a really good job of going out to schools and helping schools understand what they can do to get mm. boys more effectively involved. Here are three things I talk about in the boy crisis that are absolutely essential for schools. Number one is to begin to hire about equal numbers of male versus female teachers. Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? I mean, virtually all yes. teachers are female, and the younger the student, the higher percentage of female teachers. That's absolutely correct. And here's the danger. The boys that are most vulnerable are boys that have minimal or no father involvement. So the most vulnerable boys go from a mom-only family mm. to a female-only classroom mm. at age, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade, sure. fourth grade, fifth grade. And so by the time they're in fourth or fifth grade, almost all of their role models have been female. And then we wonder why these boys are exceptionally vulnerable mm. to drug dealers who have an authoritarian personality or gang leaders who say, you know, we'll give you some identity and this, you know, and you protect this turf and you become a gang member by severely hurting somebody or killing somebody mm. and getting away with it. Mm. And then you're part of our crowd and your group and so on. And so Hitler youth used to look for boys without fathers. This has been known for a long time. Wow. And so this is, and I, I, you know, discuss this, you know, this whole, uh, the, how we really have understood the damage of lack of male role model sure. for a long time. And we have suddenly forgotten this. The second thing that schools need mm -hmm. to do is to make sure that recess is restored. A lot of schools have become to be very legally fearful about recess because somebody might hurt each other and they could be sued. Oh. You should be sued if you don't have recess. Yes. Because you are basically, you're basically, it's a form, a lack of recess is a form of child abuse for boys. Mm. And uh, this is really um, harmful to boys. And we also know now from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, that children, not just boys, but girls and boys, for each moment that they spend at recess, they are likely to do better at a test that is following than any given moment spent studying for the test. And obviously this can be taken to the extreme. You need to study for sure, the test. Sure. 
but you need to balance that with having recess. This is very true for boys, and it's also true to a lesser degree for mm. girls. Number three is the purpose thing in the vocational education that we talked about. Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair, said that you know, we have two major challenges to America's economic future. One is cyber warfare. The other is a boy crisis. And the boy crisis was partially because U.S. technology makes the boy crisis more egregious in the United States than elsewhere because we are doing less work to prepare our boys for things like vocational education, mm -hmm. to help them make the transition. In the old days, if a boy wasn't academic, he could use his muscle and get a good job. Today, more and more of the muscle jobs are being taken over by machines or by muscle is transitioning to mental, to um, microchip, and that is not, and boys that aren't prepared to do physical things like welding and um, in vocational education, those are very harmful to the non-academic boys. So the emphasis on get a college education is missing the tremendous importance that being trained to be a plumber or being trained to be uh, repair electric vehicles, things that are needed for the future and take the non-academic boys and say, you can be a welder, but to be a welder, you need to have a certain amount of physics and a certain amount of chemistry. And suddenly boys start being not so resistant to studying physics or chemistry because they realize if they do study physics or chemistry, it has a direct goal, becoming a better welder, a higher paid welder, mm. then I'll be able to support my family, then a woman will like me, love me, then I'll be a good father and that that will um, and so those are the types of connections that are made when our schools do not do vocational education recess or hire male teachers they're missing three enormous opportunities to be a benefit to our sons wow that is fascinating i do wonder are there even enough male teachers graduating to fill that void yet and how do we encourage more men to get into the teaching fields because we actually need it so much Absolutely. We need to create a part of what I'm working on is to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. And one of the functions of a White House Council on Boys and Men are to make the importance of fathering a very important issue by calling boys who are fathers, who focus on fatherhood as a profession, father warriors as people who have really overcome all the social discrimination to become full-time dads and to be able to do that full-time if they're inclined in that direction. Mm. Uh, this is the type of thing that John Lennon did for five years to raise his son, uh, even though he had a phenomenal career. He was in one of my men's groups and he told me that, you know, that it was a huge job for him to give up all his contacts and his contracts and to talk with his wife about uh, taking five years off to raise his um, son, uh, Sean, and that yet that doing that was the best decision of his life. Wow. So we have to create an atmosphere where men are acknowledged and admired and called warriors and heroes when they raise their children well. It's time to stop calling our heroes heroes only when they risk their life in killing on or off the killing fields of being killed or killing. Um, now we need to acknowledge fathers who spend their full time loving and being loved mm -hmm. and raising a new generation. We also need to do a whole different um, campaign for getting males to be proud of themselves and called new heroes for being teachers yeah. and for being outstanding at teachers and taking not just being male teachers who are imitation female teachers, right. but male teachers who, um, who are very good at creating activities because boys 
succeed by doing. And this is another thing that the Gurian Institute is very good about helping um, teachers understand. And so, so reading the Boy Crisis book about what types of things need to be done uh, for teachers, and then hiring something like the Gurian Institute to come to your school to train the teachers, those are a good uh, one-two step for that. Awesome. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much. Uh, we are out of time for today, but I really do appreciate it. The book is The Boy Crisis. It's fascinating. I highly, highly recommend it. What a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a total pleasure. You're so insightful and right on target and ask good questions and then spend a good time listening oh, to I him. appreciate so it. Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, Rebels. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be a better parent and a better spouse. My goodness, you are doing amazing and we appreciate you. Thanks to our sponsors, The Voice of the Martyrs at persecution.com, helping those being persecuted for more than 50 years around the world. And our new sponsor, Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash rebel parenting. These are 15-minute summaries of nonfiction books. I've read The Richest Man in Babylon, Start With Why, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, Good to Great by Jim Collins. It lets you know whether or not you want to read the entire book or did you get what you needed from that 15-minute little blink. Thanks to our sponsors, Blinkist.com, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com slash Rebel Parenting. God bless, Rebels. We'll see you soon. Rebel Parenting is produced by Rebel Media House and when you need a little help with your marriage or parenting, and everyone does, you can find it at rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the Rebel Update by texting the word REBEL to 444-999. That's R-E-B-E-L and the number is 444-999. We love it when you share Rebel Parenting with your friends and family, so thank you. God bless. Thanks for spending your time with us. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Rebel Parenting.